It is, be, it is a pleasure to be with you as we're continuing the series that we are calling Stewards. Now, this is something that we actually do every year. We take a couple of weekends to talk specifically about stewardship, to talk really specifically about financial stewardship. And many people have asked, well, why? Why does you know, Trinity always do that at the beginning of the year? And, and to help answer why, I really want to tell just a, a brief story. There's a, there's a story told of a pagan uh, Russian king. Uh, who was um, in the kind of the Middle Ages, uh, to whom Christian missionaries went. And they started to uh, share the gospel with him, talk to him about Jesus. And eventually he decided um, to become a follower of Christ. And he commanded that the people in his uh, government and the people in his country also be baptized, that they become Christians as well. But the Christian priests who were uh, witnessing to him noticed something interesting when his soldiers came to be baptized. They found that when the soldiers came to be baptized, they would go down into the water, but they would hold one hand out of the water. And when the priests started to ask, why are they doing that? What's going on? The king answered, well, that is their sword hand. And they want to be baptized, but they also want to be free to kill people because that's their job as soldiers. So they don't want their sword hand baptized. And part of the reason I tell that story really gets to the heart of why we do a series like this every year. Because I think that we as Americans, when it comes to our bank accounts and our wallets, often get baptized with our wallets out of the water. That people, when they think about the church, they say, I love the church, I want you to tell me about Jesus, I want to know about God's will for my life, just so long as you don't talk about my bank account or my finances. I don't want to talk about finances. I don't want to talk about money. And yet the reality is, is so many Americans, when you ask them what stresses them out the most, is it's their finances. It's how they're doing with the money that they make and the material possessions that they own. And so part of the reason we do this as a church is because that is a key area of discipleship. One of the things that we believe is in terms of following Jesus is that Jesus' desire is to give us life and life abundantly. That's actually something that he says in John uh, 10, verse 10. He says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Furthermore, when you look at Jesus, what you find is he actually talks about money and finances far more than he talks about heaven and hell. And it's because he understands that this is a key area for human beings across the board. In any time, in any age, in any place, finances, material possessions are something that can either make or break your relationship with God. In fact, Jesus was willing to say, as we heard in our gospel reading for this morning, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He put those in that order for that reason. Because what we give our money and our resources to has a way of shaping the rest of our lives. And so, yeah, we talk about finances at Trinity. We talk about finances as an act of obedience to Jesus. And so throughout this series, what we're going to really be talking about is the heart. Talking about our heart. What are our heart attitudes when it comes to the things that God has blessed us with? What does it mean to be a steward, recognizing that everything that we have is ultimately a gift from him? That's why we're talking about it. Last week, we talked about priorities. We said that priorities can either reveal a heart turned toward God or a heart that is turned toward some other idol. And that often how we spend our money can reveal our priorities because we tend to spend money and devote energy and resources to the things that matter most to us. And this week we're going to be talking about the word intentionality. 
That's what we'll be discussing. But I think it's only right that before we dive into the message and really look at God's word, that we allow Jesus to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message he has for us, especially in a culture where this is such an emotional issue. So let's take a moment now and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you do indeed provide richly for us. Your desire is to give us our daily bread that you love us, that you cherish us, and that you provide for us. And yet, Lord, so often we forget that. And so this morning, as we're talking about finances, as we're talking about intentionality, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So over the past uh, couple of months, my wife Jenny and I have been listening to an audiobook. It's an audiobook by a uh, guy named Joshua Becker. And at the beginning of the book, he tells a story about one Memorial Day weekend in 2008. He said he loves Memorial Day weekend because usually it's like the, uh, it's usually a warm uh, weekend. And it's a great time with the extra day off to get some major projects done around the house. And he said on this particular Memorial Day weekend, the project that he wanted to get done is he wanted to clean out his garage. He noticed that as the, as the summer kind of, as the winter had been progressing and the cold months had kind of just lengthened, you know, stuff just kind of gets thrown in random corners in the garage and it gets a little bit dirty. So he says, what I'm going to do is the, the weather's beautiful. I'm going to pull all my stuff out of the garage onto the driveway so that I can then clean out the garage and hose it down, and then I'll put it all back in. It'll be beautifully organized, ready for the summer months. And so he, uh, he had his five-year-old son. He said, buddy, after breakfast, buddy, let's go out to the garage. You can help daddy. You can imagine how long he had helped from his five-year-old. It's about five minutes. Kid goes off and plays, and, and Joshua's sitting there cleaning out the garage. Well, 30 minutes Come, go, go by, and the five-year-old comes back and says, Daddy, you said that we would play after garage time. And he's like, yeah, buddy, but garage time is still going on. So when I'm done, I promise I'll play. You know, time passes, the kid comes back. Daddy, you said we, we would play after garage time. He's just like, yeah, I know, I know, buddy. I know I said that, but garage time is still happening. Well, this cycle repeated itself a couple times, and then it was lunchtime. And they went in, and they had lunch, and he came back out, and still his stuff needed to be dealt with. And his child kept asking him, Daddy, you know, can, can we play now? And he's like, as soon as the garage is done, I promise. And he remembers having this moment where he saw his, his little child skipping away from him after asking that question for like the billionth time, watching him as he goes around the yard to play by himself. And this is what he said. He said, I already knew that possessions don't equal happiness. I mean, doesn't everybody? At least we all profess to know that our things won't bring us true satisfaction. But in that moment, as I surveyed the pile of stuff in my driveway, another realization came to me. Not only are my possessions not bringing happiness into my life, even worse, they're actually distracting me from the things that do. I want to read that last line again. Not only are my possessions not bringing happiness into my life, they are distracting me from the things that do. He wrote about this in his book, The More of Less. And what I find so poignant about that story and about the opening lines, part of the reason we love this book and we decided to listen to the rest of it and we've kind of referred back to it over and over again since we first uh, listened to it is because of the fact that Joshua Becker is putting his finger on the struggle that many Americans have when it comes to our finances and our possessions. That while we know cognitively 
These things will not bring us satisfaction and happiness. We understand at a deep heart level that oftentimes they overwhelm us. That although we would say, yeah, I know that I don't need all this stuff, and I know I don't need like a massive paycheck in order to be truly satisfied and, truly, and to be truly happy, we go about our daily lives as if that's not true. As if, as if our stuff does matter. As if there's not quite enough. As if we need a bigger paycheck. We need the nicer house. We need more in order to be safe, in order to be secure. In fact, a couple of years ago, in 2009, uh, the Pew Research Center uh, did a little bit of a study on why people work, why it is they do their jobs. And what they found is among the major reasons that people work, 87% of Americans said that a major reason that they work is to support themselves and their families. Not to buy big screen TVs, not to get the latest like uh, toy or gadget, not to go on the most awesome vacation. No, simply to provide. Somebody say, I just want to make sure that there's food on the table, a roof over our heads, that our kids are going to school, and that we're able to just raise them well. Just all we desire is our daily bread. That's, that's why I work. Because I know that ultimately my work serves the things that matter most in my life, my loved ones, my family. But yet, in 2017, CareerBuilder did a survey of working Americans and found that 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And one of the interesting things about their study is they found that, that this was true regardless of how much money you were making. That even those who were making six figures or more said that they lived paycheck to paycheck. As if they just didn't quite have enough. Now, you could get into that and say, well, there's probably lots of reasons Americans are stuck that way. I mean, talk about like the, uh, the rise in taxes and how expensive it is to own a home and, and this, that, and the other thing. Yes, there, there are lots of factors that point to this. But I think that that second data point, the fact that it doesn't matter how much you're making... That even those making six figures or more say that they're living paycheck to paycheck actually puts its finger on something a lot deeper that goes on in our society, in our culture, and in our very hearts. And it's the fact that we are constantly bombarded by things that promise to give us a secure and safe life, but don't ultimately deliver. We are an over-advertised culture. That whether you're on social media, scrolling through your favorite news website, watching television, on YouTube, driving down the street, going through the mall, going to the grocery store, even on your phone, through the apps that you use day in and day out, you are being marketed to. We are being marketed to. And all these things that, that are being marketed to us hold out promises that don't ultimately deliver, and yet we buy into them all the time, that if you have this thing, you will be safe. You will have enough. That if you truly want to be secure, you need X, Y, and Z. That if you really want your kids to have a good start in life, they need to have this kind of thing. That if you really want to make sure that you're safe, you need to have this size house and this many cars and so on and so forth holds out the promise of the American dream and what it looks like to be a healthy, well-balanced family, and often we tie it to stuff that we're being marketed to. And while you would, could ask anybody, well, do you really think that that's going to give you ultimate satisfaction? People say, no, no, of course I know that it doesn't give me ultimate satisfaction. Yet, when we spend our money and our time and our resources, we spend it acquiring more as if that's not true. 
See, what's really going on is that there is a war being waged for our hearts. And it's a war that we often face without really being thoughtful about it, without being intentional. Jesus puts his finger on what this war is in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, you cannot serve both God and money. In fact, if you were to really take a close look at chapter 6, it's one of Jesus' most extended treatments of the question about wealth and what do we do with our money. And so I actually want to read the passage in its fullness. This is Matthew 6, verse 19 and following. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, what I love about that passage is verses 22 and 23 actually talk about the the eye as the lamp of the body. And it's like, well, why is he talking about that in the middle of this discussion about wealth? I think it's because he knows that our eyes are often attracted to the things that we long for, the things that we desire, that often we devote our attention to the people who have more, that we lust after a different way of life. The people at a higher standard of living. And Jesus is saying, be careful what you're setting your attention on. And I think for us in our over-marketed and over-advertised culture, this is very, very relevant for us. What are our eyes set upon? Because it says, what your eyes are set upon are either going to give you peace or they're going to lead to inner darkness and turmoil. And oftentimes when it comes to our bank accounts, I think that that's what's going on. But then I love what else he says. He says, you can't serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And I think when people say, I hate it when the church talks about money. I hate when you talk about our finances and talk about what I'm doing with my bank account. Is that not us basically saying, I despise it when God tries to get into my budget? I'm sorry if I'm I'm hitting it kind of hard here, but I think that this is one of the big issues that we as Americans wrestle with. I know that it's one of the issues I wrestle with. It's one of the things that I constantly have to go back to and reevaluate and say, how am I doing in this area? Am I truly serving God with everything that I have? Or am I giving my allegiance to something else? And the problem with this war and this battle is that often it's waged without us even being aware that it's happening. We just kind of slip back into it. We start buying less and giving, uh, we start buying more and giving away less. And often it's unconscious. Often it's our default posture, which is why this morning we have to talk about intentionality. We have to name what the problem is. We have to recognize that there's this battle going on, and intentionality doesn't just mean that we recognize it, but that we put some sort of plan into place to counteract it. 
Because one of the things that we miss out on when we're not being intentional, when we're getting sucked back into our stuff, where our stuff begins to own us rather than the other way around, is we're missing out on the abundant life that Jesus desires to give. Because what he says in the rest of Matthew 6, I think is quite honestly beautiful, and it's an invitation that we often miss. Listen to what he says in verse 25 and following. He says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? He goes on and talks about clothing as well and says, Doesn't God clothe the flowers of the field? Aren't you much more precious in his sight than they? And concludes in verse 32 and following with these words, he says, um, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What Jesus is offering is a kingdom life. A life lived under the sure knowledge that God will provide everything for us. A life lived without worries and fears and troubles when we start to recognize that everything that we desire is given to us by God and that actually when we look at our stuff, we have more than enough for what we face each day. Jesus says your father knows that you need these things. And he will provide. And, and many people say, well, how do I know that he's going to provide? It's one thing to say it, but, but how do I know that God is going to provide everything for me? Well, consider what he's already given. I love what St. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all He says, you want to know that God loves you and knows what you need? He was willing to lay down his life for you. So he said last week, he was willing, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake, so that we, though poor, might become rich. God has provided everything for your eternal life, which means that he is going to provide everything for your daily living as well. God loves us and provides for us. And so we don't need to be afraid to take a hard and intentional look at our finances and to consider what might God be calling me to do with what he's given me. Which is why this morning we wanted to give you a tool to help you think intentionally about the blessings that God has provided. The tool that we've given you is something you were actually handed when you walked in. You were handed a a sheet of paper that was called a a generosity commitment. Um, And uh, if you don't have one, uh, go ahead and raise your hand because we're going to look at this together. Our ushers can give you one if you forgot to get one as you walked in. I want you to open it up and take a look at it because inside that commitment card, there's something called the generosity ladder. And the generosity ladder is something that was actually developed by a guy named Nelson Searcy. He's a pastor and a a church leadership consultant. And he said, you know, one of the things that we need to do a better job as at the church is helping people be intentional with with their giving and with what they have. 
to help them first and foremost identify where are they currently at and what's the next step that they could take. And so he developed this generosity ladder, and I just kind of want to go through it with you um, to talk about what, what it means. He said really the first step up on the, la- on the ladder is going from not giving at all to first-time giving. It's a first-time giving. Recognizing maybe, maybe you've never given to the church or never given to a missions agency before, and maybe your first step is saying, you know what, I, I want to practice generosity with this first step of giving generously and sacrificially to something for the first time. So that, that, that could be your first step. But the second level up is actually called occasional. So maybe you've given one time, and, and now it's time to maybe give again. To consider, okay, I, I, I still have more than enough. How can I give something more? An occasional giver is someone who says, I give but not consistently. But maybe you move from first time to occasional and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give again. That in fact, the next time I have an opportunity to give, I'm going to jump at that chance and just, and just give something. As a way of putting generosity into practice, being a little bit more intentional. But maybe you're already at the occasional step. You realize I give but not consistently. Then the next level up is intentional giving. I was saying, I'm going to consistently give a portion of my income. Maybe that means that uh, every month we're going to give this much away. Maybe even sign up for like automatic donations so that you know that the moment your, your paycheck comes in, that that donation is going to go off. We're saying every time when we get up at, uh, uh, for breakfast before we go to church, we're going to cut a check. Whatever that is, you want to take an intentional step of saying, I'm going to give consistently now. Or maybe you're already consistently giving. And then the next step is to become a tither. A tithe means a tenth. Ten percent off the top. Saying, I don't want to just give consistently. I want to give ten percent off the top of whatever our household makes. In fact, this is the biblical like standard. That when you look at the Old Testament, God tells them to give a, a tenth. And actually, this was the low end of the expectation. That when you actually look at the, number, the percentage of things that Israelites ultimately gave, it was more like 30%. But he said at least a tenth of, of your first fruits, a tenth of the first fruits is being used for God's purposes and not our own. And so maybe you've been giving consistently and the next step is to become a tither. Okay? But then the final step, kind of the top of the letter, is to become an extravagant giver, saying, no, I already give 10% off the top and I want to go further. I want to give generously because I recognize God has given us more than enough. And if we can use some of what we have to bless the mission and to bless others, I want to be a part of that. And that's giving extravagantly. Our encouragement to you over the next two weeks is to take this generosity ladder home and to think intentionally, where am I at right now? And not just like think about it, look at your finances and evaluate where am I at right now and then see about taking the next step up. And I know that this is challenging and difficult, but that's why we wanted to give you a tool to help. In fact, it was a couple of years ago that uh, my, my wife and I, we were looking at our finances. We realized that we were intentional givers. We were giving a portion of our income every month. But we realized we hadn't quite gotten to a tithe, a full 10% to our church. And so I was wrestling with that. I was saying, you know, how do, how do we get there? I mean, it seems like a big leap. I mean, that would be a big change for us on a monthly basis. And it was actually another pastor sat down with me and he said, I don't want you to do it overnight. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to commit this year to 1% more for the whole year than where you're currently at. And the next year, I want you to do another percent more from where you're currently at. And the next year, 1% more from where you're currently at. So you get to that tithe, and then maybe once you've hit that tithe, 
Maybe think about 1% more. Can you stretch? And honestly, that little bit of advice has been a game changer for us. As over the past several years, we found that we have been able to give away more and live on less. And they're actually experiencing the, the, the joy of the, of the more of less, to use uh, Becker's, uh, the title of Becker's book for a second. Our encouragement to you is to simply say, where am I at and where is God calling me to go? Because the reason God does this, the reason we talk about tithing, is because tithing is actually not for God's benefit, it's for ours. I love what Dave Ramsey said. He's kind of like a a big consultant when it comes to finances. And he's worked with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people on their finances and financial stewardship. And one of the things that he found is he found that there were some people who they would stop tithing when they found themselves in debt. And he said, one of the things that I've found is that when people stop tithing, their finances actually end up getting worse. And here's what he says about it. He says, many people have observed that after they stop tithing, their finances seem to get worse. What I tell you is that if you can't live off of 90% of your income, then you probably are struggling to live off of 100% anyway. That means you have bigger financial problems that you need to address. But remember this, tithing was created for our benefit. It teaches us how to keep God first in our lives and how to live unselfishly. How to keep God first in our lives and live unselfishly. And one of the things that Ramsey has said is he said, true to Jesus' word, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He has found that when people learn to tithe, it overflows into other areas of their life. He says, people who put God first with their finances become a little less selfish. And unselfish people make better spouses, friends, relatives, employees, and employers. Oh, and they usually have better finances to boot. God is trying to teach us how to prosper. Teach us how to prosper in every area of life. And as Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. He says that this one critical area can pay dividends in every single other area, which is why it's worth it to be intentional. To really go to the heart of the matter and say, all right, is it God that I serve or money? And how can I be intentional with what I have that I am not only living within my means, but I am generously giving away for the sake of the mission and for the sake of blessing others? And so I don't want you to fill out that commitment card this morning. I don't want you to turn that in. I want you to take it home with you. I want you to sit down with the card and the ladder in front of you and say, where are we at and where is God calling us to go next? In the fourth week of the series, we're going to bring those back and we're just going to pray over them. But I want you to take the next two weeks to really think about it as we continue to talk about this series about influence and generosity. That's what's coming up over the next two weeks. So take those home with you. Ladies and gentlemen, I I understand being intentional can be tough. And none of us does it perfectly, okay? My wife and I, we have a a financial check-in that we do on Sunday nights. And there are some Sundays when we get to the end of the day and we are wiped out and we miss it for that week. But it doesn't mean we stop checking in. We re-up the next week and we say, all right, let's get back on track. And, And really this series is about getting back on track. Maybe you've let things slip. That's okay. See this as an invitation to be intentional once more. Because in the process of being intentional, you are going to see that God has given you everything that you absolutely need and has now called you to be generous with the rest. It's with that in mind that I want to close in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do indeed live in a world that tells us we're never going to have enough and entices us with things that promise to provide and don't.
And so, Lord, we pray that we would have eyes to see the truth, to recognize that you are on your throne, that you have given us everything that we require. And so, Lord, help us to be bold, to be brave, to take a look at our finances intentionally, to surrender those to you and to ask you, what would you have us do? Teach us, O oh Lord, to do this with wisdom, to not be careless or reckless, not, not be haphazard, but to really think it through well, to surrender it to you as an act of worship. And Lord, we pray that through that, we would see that as we seek first your kingdom, you do indeed provide for our, for our daily bread, for all that we need to sustain us in body and in soul. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.